This is Eric Hesch with The Encrypted Economy. Today, we have Dave Jevons on the show. He's the founder of CypherTrace. Now, CypherTrace provides AML, in money laundering, and KYC, know your customer compliance, risk mitigation from crypto threats, and financial investigation forensic tools. Their customers include Binance, Galaxy Digital, and Celebrate, the last of which we will cover in a later episode. In this episode, we talk about the travel rule and how it applies to crypto transactions. Now, the travel rule is a BSA or Bank Secrecy Act rule that requires all financial institutions to pass on certain information to the next financial institution for transactions and certain fund transmittals involving obviously more than one financial institution. Now, we explore what it means or it doesn't mean for virtual currencies, as well as virtual currencies that have uh, certain privacy properties, such as Zcash, Monero, Dash, as well as what it means for decentralized finance or DeFi. We also talk about FATF or the Financial Action Task Force, their recommendations, their draft recommendations as it relates to AML. It's a topic we touched on with Mark Boyron, the general counsel of DYDX, a few weeks back and what it means for the rest of the world. Towards the end, I push a little bit into what a technical solution might look like for KYC compliance across jurisdictions and protocols before talking a little bit about law enforcement. Now, in that discussion, the term MLAT comes up, which just means multilateral treaty. Um, we talk about some of the threats that decentralized protocols have experienced and end the episode by touching on something quite interesting, the SEC's ability to enforce security violations against developers or other people associated with particularly a decentralized project. Now, this is really relevant given the SEC's latest complaint against BitConnect. Now, you might remember BitConnect. Anyway, uh, I know that was bad. BitConnect was an unincorporated company. And that's notable, particularly if you're a decentralized autonomous organization yourself that never actually formed. Now, that was a Ponzi scheme. And there were promoters. And there were avenues to go after these promoters individually. But the SEC chose one that would hold them personally liable for securities issuances, for making an unregistered securities offering. Think about what that means. If this complaint, they settle or they get a favorable judgment, it could be seen as precedent and could be used to against developers even. So I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that and what kind of statements are made because obviously not fair to hold developers liable for securities law violations. Anyway, so with that thought-provoking comment, I now bring you the episode with Dave Jevons. Welcome to The Encrypted Economy, where we look at the business of regulation and security for all things encrypted, digital assets, blockchain technology, privacy, and smart contracts. Hope you'll join us while we explore these forces that are shaping the economy. All right, so this is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy. And today I'm fortunate enough to have Dave Jevons, CEO of CypherTrace, on the podcast. Uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric, it's great to be here. So, Dave, why don't you give us a little bit of background on, on how you got to where you are today? My background is a master's degree in computer science. I started out at Apple and then moved into startups. And I've done three different startups that are all about encryption and security and selling into the financial services markets. I got interested in virtual currencies as they were probably about 1999. And in 2000, I went to the financial cryptography conference, which was held, it's always held in the Caribbean on the tax efficient islands, if you will. So this time it was on Anguilla. And uh, I got to meet the eGold guys, DigiCash folks, the zero knowledge um, team from Montreal that eventually some of those were involved in kind of what we see today as zero knowledge proofs. So that got me pretty hooked on, on the early days of crypto. Nine years later, Bitcoin came out. And within a year or two, I was like, okay, this is the one that's finally gonna actually make it happen. Wow, quite the history. My mind doesn't go back nearly that that far, but uh, I was in the financial services space. So, uh, oftentimes at this point in the podcast, I ask for like a personal experience that you know, a single experience defining maybe your your values or your worldview. That's a difficult one, I would say. Um, I've traveled all over the world. I was born in uh, in the Middle East to British parents. I think seeing the world that way and different values and struggles that some folks have in different countries around moving money and financial policy and borders and things kind of created my view around 
how people should be able to have freedom to move around the world, and that includes their finances. Well, great. So, so today we're going to be talking about what CypherTrace does, and and more importantly, the travel rule, virtual currencies, and and how we're how, how we're we're dealing with AML in this in these digital asset markets. So, why don't we start off with the travel rule? Maybe just review again for the listeners, sort of the core elements of it and how it impacts uh, virtual currencies. So, the travel rule has been in place in the United States for many years, and that's rolling out across the world now. Basically, what it does is it makes crypto currency companies, so exchanges, trading desks, look a little bit more like banks. So the idea is that when currency is moved from one, let's say an exchange to another exchange, they will have to send the name and account information of who's sending the funds and who's receiving them. And both sides will have to store it and then perform sanction screening and other money laundering checks on those funds. Right. And, and the travel rule, to some extent, doesn't go quite as far as the recommendations of the Financial Action Task Force. But in many ways, they cover some of the same elements, just the Financial Action Task Force, obviously, much more in depth. That's right. So the travel rule has really been in place. And, and, and if you ask regulators in the United States, for example, FinCEN under the Department of Treasury is our prime regulator for financial services companies. They would say that at least since 2015, companies in the US should have been compliant with it. Now we all know that they're not, but that's their view, which is they classified virtual currencies as having to follow the same rules as traditional currencies. And that means you have to send originator and beneficiary information. So they haven't done much in the way of enforcement. There's, It was mentioned in, a, in one or two enforcement action letters, but they're clearly hoping that as more countries start to enforce the same regulations, that they'll be able to, I guess, do enforcement. Right. And and one of the areas that has caused a lot of agita in the crypto community in the US is the potential application to unhosted wallets. Right. I, I don't see that that's going to happen. It's certainly, I don't think it's feasible. The recommendations, at least from the Financial Action Task Force, as well as a number of other jurisdictions are that if you're sending funds to an unhosted wallet, you still have to ask the customer the name of who you're sending it to and record that. But it doesn't impact the travel rule. Like you don't have to send that information to people. Right. But even in the context of the of the FATF rules, you would still have to collect it. Right. You still have to collect it. So so now there's a, a close connection, obviously, between the US and the Financial Action Task Force. You know, US Treasury effectively it's a brainchild or or emanated from it. And, and as FATF moves forward on these recommendations and issues this guidance, what does this really mean for the, for the rest of the world? Well, the Financial Action Task Force is not a regulator. It's a group of regulators. There's 190 countries who participate in the FATF meetings. On the virtual currency side, I would say probably there's 70 or 80 regular attendees to the meetings, sometimes more. What they do is they make recommendations on regulations. It's up to each country to actually write their own rules. Now, FATF obviously puts pressure on countries, so they maintain blacklists and gray lists of countries that they deem to not have adequate anti-money laundering regulations and enforcement. So they have a lot of power if you will. I mean, it's a bit of a name and shame game, but every country pays attention to what FATF is doing in this area. So what I think you'll see is that a much broader rollout of these types of requirements over 2021 and into 2022. And you and I talked a little bit about the sunrise issues that this raises. Do you want to develop on that a little bit? Yeah. So the sunrise problem is this. As we all know, in every different time zone around the world, in every different country, the sun comes up at a different time every morning. It's just each country is just different. Same with regulations. So regulations in the US are implemented already. They're not implemented, let's say, for example, in France. They're implemented in Singapore, but they're not yet implemented in Japan. So this creates a big problem when what you're talking about is moving information between exchanges or other virtual asset service providers, because one might be in a regulated area where you have to send and receive the information. The other country hasn't implemented those regulations. So what does that mean? Does that mean your customers can't send crypto from your country, let's say the US to France? I mean, technically, that's what it means. So there's this problem of rolling regulation and it not being homogenized around the world. So that's the sunrise problem is 
do you wait till every country has the same regulation or do you start enforcement soon? And then what does that mean as far as funds flow? Right. So as it relates to FATF, they've been issuing guidance. Um, you know, FATF goes back what, a decades for sure. I think it was, a, I forget the year that it started, but I know it's decades old. Has the Sunrise issue been an issue before in a, in a non-virtual yes. currency context? Yes, it has been an issue before. It took several years to get it solved. So there was some regulatory forbearance, we call it, which basically means even if it's a regulatory requirement, people give companies a year or two or three to before they start fining them. Where it happened was when the SWIFT payment network for wire transfers came up. And so the travel rule was effectively put on that, which is, you know, if you send money and a wire transfer from one bank account to another, the name of both the originator, their account number, and the beneficiary, and their account number goes along with the payments and is stored by both banks. It was easier back then because SWIFT was one centralized network owned by the banks and could set up messaging standards, software, and pretty much everyone used that system. There's not competitors to SWIFT. Today, it's really different. So we're trying to do this all over the internet without some centralized body, there's different standards uh, organizations, there's proprietary implementations. So it's a very different world than what we had when the, the travel role was first introduced. But even then, with a centralized network, it still took about three years or four years to really get it working properly. So, so what would be the implications uh, going back to virtual currencies for uh, currency w- which, by their nature, are private? You know, meaning you can always—I I, suppose—you can always collect information through like a, a side application or a side chain, and then provide it like alongside, like alongside a Monero or alongside a Dash or alongside a Zcash, for example. All of which, for the listeners, are privacy coins which are designed not to allow that kind of information keeping, but have their own properties that make them a good choice in a lot of cases, like the resiliency and and the way that it's been architected. What are your thoughts on whether this is an issue that has a larger impact on coins that have privacy as a core core component of it versus uh, others that are more public? I think the issues are very similar. Because the movement of this so-called travel rule information, the originator beneficiary information, has to happen off-chain anyway, because you've got to support all the different currencies. So it's not like something is going to get built into the protocol. You're not going to build it into Monero using view keys and things like that, at least my view, not practically. It's going to be an overlay communications method. So it would apply equally to Monero as it would to Bitcoin. The challenge is you have to, as a financial institution, i.e. an exchange or a trading desk or what have you, you have to identify whether the funds are going to or coming from a privately hosted wallet. And that's a challenge. So in, in a lot of currencies, you can mostly tell whether it's at an exchange or it comes from an unhosted wallet, you know, comes from someone's phone or their computer. Not so in Monero, much more challenging to do. So you pretty much have to trust the user to tell you, okay, that comes from my own unhosted private wallet, or that's coming from another exchange. I think this will have an impact potentially on the number of exchanges that end up supporting those currencies. Because if they can't trust their users, let's say, or they feel like, oh, every single user says it's coming from a private unhosted wallet, they may end up not accepting inbound or outbound transactions for those privacy coins. So that's what I foresee as one potential issue. Right. So the the Department of Justice put out an enforcement framework at the beginning of the year where they specifically called out some of these privacy coins um, in the context of of AML and and what they were able to determine. I, I guess the challenge for some of these privacy coins is I mean, it, it's sort of in, you know, there's the trusting element, but do you have like a side chain or, or an off chain application that's collecting this information? But then, you know, at that point, why are you holding a privacy coin? I mean, I guess there could be other properties, but. For sure. Well, I think the reason you would do it is to be able to at least move money between individuals and not have that be tracked. But at the end of the day, with these record keeping requirements, travel rule as well, you're quite right, which is you're going to have to collect the originator and beneficiary information for currently, as proposed, transactions from one virtual asset service provider to another. Now, you might say, well, okay, 
Eric, great. I'm going to move it in and out through, let's say, Ethereum or Bitcoin. And then I'm going to use a currency swap service to swap it from one currency to another. Under the current proposed regulations, those would also be considered virtual asset service providers, unless they're completely implemented as DeFi protocols. They would have to have that information anyway. So it's an interesting conundrum. Today, I would say the, you know, the way around it is to use a DeFi swap service. But I think as we're going to probably talk about soon, the proposals from FATF would potentially read on, uh, on DeFi as well. Right, right. So the 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 most recent guidance from FATF, FATF, uh, and I talked about this with Mark Boyron. Uh, he's a general counsel of DYDX. Uh, we had him on a, a few weeks ago, and basically, in their most recent guidance, you know, initially they took issue with what was it? It was the so-called. Um, it wasn't so-called DeFi. First, they were attacking. It was so-called stable coins. So-called stable coins. That was their first guidance, and then they they love this word so-called. So then they they launched into this this other guidance, and they threw DeFi into the so-called. I've never seen like something that is purportedly. I, I guess they want a different name. I don't know. <laughs> so-called. So so they did start to target DeFi. Uh, in their most recent guidance. But what is that, you know, aren't we going pretty, you know, and I raise this with Mark Warren, at what point does FATF's recommendations just become contrast with the reality? I mean, how do you implement all these requirements on a decentralized protocol? Um, well, there's a couple of ways to to deal with it. And let's just also, I want to clarify that the discussion about DeFi is not in the, finan- in the FATF recommendations yet. It's in the draft recommendations, which we've you know all had a chance to review, but the actual recommendations won't come out until mid-June of 2021. So there, there is time for them to perform edits. They've, they've, they'll have had a couple of months from public commentary to, to perform edits to it. And they'll have also talked to a number of other regulators about their thoughts, and not everyone thinks the same way about it. So first thing. I'd say, secondly, to your question, some things can be implemented in DeFi today. So the company I work for, CypherTrace, launched a DeFi comply product six weeks ago, and that allows protocol authors and people who are writing the smart contracts to call a Chainlink Oracle that calls CypherTrace that performs your sanctions screening compliance. So that can be done at the protocol level by using, like, like I said, an Oracle that connects out and does this work for you and returns back and you can say, nope, I don't want to do transactions with a sanctioned entity because I've got full 100% liability and you know people go to jail for that kind of thing, not just fines. So I think the harder one is the KYC component, the know your customer. So that is part of what we've seen in the proposed guidelines is DeFi systems would have to have some notion of who the customer is and today they don't and that's going to be a really challenging thing to implement right for sure and it, and it also sort of runs against the grain of what a lot of, of what defi is actually trying to accomplish it it has an additional layer i mean arguably once you start layering all those components into it it starts to look more like a cdfi you know a central defi <laughs> exchange i mean it's you have to centralize the the information and then it no longer becomes you know it's sort of something in between a centralized and a decentralized exchange do you agree or do you think it's really just a question of like initial onboarding and record keeping and then after that point it can continue on its merry way as it has in defi land i think it's i think it's the onboarding issue now this gets down to you know, this question of does this apply to private unhosted wallets? So the way that some people are tackling this problem is whitelisting addresses and wallets for use in DeFi. So you go through a verification process and then your address or addresses are now associated with a known person and then you're on a whitelist and so you can transact. Not saying that's the best way. It's just a way that we have seen. There's a lot of people who think that's the easiest way, and there's a lot who are highly against it. But that would be a, a simple way to do it. And similarly, you'd have to have your smart contracts call out to an oracle that would say, you know, is this um, a known entity or not? And then you'd say yes, and then you'd be able to transact. So that's one potential model for it. You could also imagine a better one would be 
decentralizing that perhaps and saying having attestation bodies that say I've checked I know this person is real I put it on a blockchain that so you can look up their addresses and say yep we know it's real and if someone needs to go look up that the true name of that person let's say you know if there's a criminal investigation then law enforcement would know who to call and subpoena to get that name so you wouldn't have people's names flying around all over the blockchain so that's another proposal Right. And then I guess there'd be some sensitivity as to whatever body would be holding all that information. So I guess the, the, the first proposal is more just in the way of whitelisting an address, but nothing more and thus preserving the privacy, you know, after that initial, you know, that initial work was done. Right. Mm-hmm. So presumably mm-hmm. they would they would collect the information and then they would potentially, you know, I, I guess there's different options. They could destroy it. They could uh, put it mm-hmm. in uh, like cold storage or something to that effect, like, you know, mm-hmm. whatever privacy enhancement they need to do to, to protect it. And then I guess in the second one, it's certainly a slightly more onerous one where part of the mandate of that enterprise would be to, or that that Oracle would be to hold all that information. But the difference being is that it would be more readily accessible by potentially law enforcement or even people who wanted to do or organizations that needed to do greater KYC? Is that sort of the distinction between the two that you raised? Well, I think they're they're very similar. There's this question that you bring up of, do I verify an an identity and then delete it? Or do I keep it around and then it's available upon request? This really gets down to what the guidance is going to be and then which countries choose to implement what part of it. So if countries decide that DeFi systems have to do the same thing similar to the travel rule. So we have to record the name of who's ever on each side of the transaction. You've got a record keeping problem anyway. So I'm not, it's, I'm not sure that saying someone checked it and then threw it away is going to meet the obligation because the thing is not just, I mean, if you check that someone that exists and then you delete it, why bother? It does nothing. And I think, I mean, it accomplishes nothing. What, what I, if you look at the history of this whole anti-money laundering thing, it's traditionally been reliant on recording the names of people, having some identity verification. You know, I look at a driver's license, what have you, I store it. And then if there is an investigation, I can, you know, I know who to go talk to. Um, secondarily, it's about screening. That's looking for names and addresses of known folks that shouldn't be doing transactions. So, you know, if you're in certain country or you're a known financial criminal. So it's really about name scanning. So, again, I don't see how it accomplishes anything without somebody storing that information and somebody having to do some kind of scan on it. So so the distinction between the whitelisting and, and the second example would be simply the availability of the information. In one case, potentially yeah. you have a, a way of auditing it or gaining some assurances that the whitelist is accurate, but it isn't necessarily made available, but the process is trusted. Potentially in the other case, it I mean, in either case, but they could be potentially subject to subpoena. But I mean, considering that it probably wouldn't be located across all jurisdictions. It'd probably be in one jurisdiction and thus the subpoena power would be limited in other jurisdictions might be a tendency to kind of locate it in a, a more law enforcement remote jurisdiction now, but still that's, trusted. That's right. So, yeah. So the whitelisting thing where I've seen it most being talked about is for institutional trading on DeFi platforms. So you're not, you can do it reasonably well because you'll say, well, okay, I know that's, this bank or this trading company. So those lists are not very big. And you don't necessarily have to know the name of the actual beneficial owner, you just know that it came from that institution, based on the whitelist. So then if there is an investigation, then the law enforcement folks go to that institution and subpoena them. So that doesn't scale globally, that doesn't work, in my opinion, for retail customers, it's it, it's been more proposed just for these, you know, institutional transactions where you might transact with 10 other trading firms or 100, but it's not going to be thousands or, you know, millions. Got it. So so it could be a sharing of a whitelist and then maybe through something like a zero knowledge proof, there's an inquiry, is this name on the, is this address on the list? You either get back, it is or it isn't, and you can't get any other information. You can't get access to the database. You can just do a query on it. Right. Yeah. There's not. There wouldn't be a centralized database in that, or or a blockchain or anything like that. And in that, in the whitelist case, it's basically 
each it's the same way it is today. Each exchange knows who their customers are, and every exchange knows their deposit addresses that they've assigned to them, and any sending addresses that were used as well, and records the transaction information. So that's that's happens today everywhere. What you point out though, Eric, is this what we call regulatory arbitrage. So you are quite right that it would if this type if this type of regulation happens in the way that it you know it's been proposed by FATF, you will likely see a lot of DeFi projects move into jurisdictions that don't have those requirements. And right. we've already seen that in in today's crypto world. You see that all the time where you've got exchanges that might operate out of Singapore in the United States, but register in Seychelles, as long as you're not servicing citizens of that country, virtually have no AML requirements. Right, right. Well, I mean, you, you know, you could also see, you know, so, so sort of breaking it down, because I, I find this fascinating, as I'm sure you do, breaking it down, you have the central exchanges, they're well positioned for this, arguably, right? Um, whether, or not they're, yeah. whether or not they're doing what they're supposed to be doing today, they should, and they know that they should have these processes in place so there's no secret there. On the DeFi right. side, this is a, a, a wrench in it. But to your point, having a central authority that all the DeFi exchanges can trust or rely on to facilitate this should this be, you know, should these recommendations be, you know, be, should they become actual recommendations that countries start to have to comply with? You're not convinced. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not big on the idea of a giant central database for the world of everybody's names and crypto addresses, to be honest. So I don't think it has to be built that way. I think you can certainly have numerous different identity or compliance oracles out there. I don't think there I don't think it's good to have a big huge one for privacy reasons but a lot of other reasons too you know I mean you're just an attack target big time you'll be the world's biggest attack target I mean let's face it you'd be attacked more than any bank so that's I'm not big on that idea of, of that centralized model I think it, I think you can build more decentralized versions of it or have different competing commercial efforts to do it it doesn't have to be right. one thing right so as opposed to one one aggregator or one protocol that would then ping all the different uh, or that would try to collect the information. Maybe it's just you're, you're pinging across multiple sources and then, you know, trying to identify the, the whitelist. Because presumably there's, you know, whether or not you aggregate it centrally or you decent, I mean, obviously in the decentralized space, to your point, you know, DeFi would probably, every time you hear about something being centralized in DeFi, it sort of runs against the grain of what DeFi is supposed to be. Like even on some level going to a chain link, if you're DeFi, you know, chain link is a centralizer of other oracles and not being an oracle itself. It sort of centralizes the act, the, the outreach. So to the extent that these different DeFi protocols can even just sort of ping across multiple sources for this with basically on, on chain or off chain, presumably that would be a better scenario. Of course, then there's a question of what the security would be in, in each of those repositories. Yeah, and you can certainly also contemplate a DeFi service, for example, would run its own customer verification and you have to go through some onboarding KYC thing and then they just run it themselves, which would presumably keep costs lower. And I mean, it's decentralized centralized, meaning every, every project, every different DEX would have, for example, its own roster of customer information so at least it's not a big centralized thing. Right, right. Well, well, certainly it's going to be interesting to see what, you know, if it does in fact make it to the recommendations. And I guess the next question is, you, you want to offer a projection for whether it actually comes into being as one of the recommendations or not? I'm sure it's going to be modified. And, and what direction do you think it takes? I think it moves forward to becoming part of the recommendations, somewhat modified. I was in Washington, D.C., last week and met with some members of the Senate Banking Committee. And do you think did the modifications would be in the... Yeah, in the FATF, in the FATF uh, recommendations. I think it will show up there. I would say members of things like the Senate Banking Committee, whom I met with last week in DC, are divided in opinion. I am not convinced that the US regulators will go down that far, or, and I don't know that they're going to rush to do it, because as we all see from our conversation, it's a topic with a lot of perhaps unintended consequences if it were to be implemented, such as, you know, the movement of DeFi to other jurisdictions and 
perhaps constraining the innovation that's happening in DeFi. So we've also had a you know an administration change uh, this year. So who's really going to be running all this stuff? Is that going to change? So I, I would say that at least in the United States, you're probably looking at you know some period of time to review that and really decide if it's if it makes sense. And I mean, this it makes the travel rule look trivial. And I can tell you the travel For rule sure. is not. <laughs> right. And, you know, one of the things, you know, I thought that we talked about with Mark Boyron was to the extent that countries just implement this and haven't even, you know, because they implement all things FATF, you know, they may be living with the ramifications, like unidentified ramifications of implementing these recommendations later. Like they may just be like, yeah, we, we implement everything FATF because we, you know, we want to be on, you know, we want to be a compliant jurisdiction. We want to, we don't want to end up, you know, on the blacklist or what have you. We want to be, you know, generate a lot of confidence, you know, more better for world trade and we need all the help we can get. But then once implemented as people, you know, in those countries try to figure it out, they may be really short of answers. That's right. And of course, you know, regulators don't have to build the thing. So, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the, and then there's, you know, cost issues. How much is it going to cost? And I mean, just even not not even the KYCing and record keeping and all that, but just transactional costs too. You know, gas is expensive right now. And um, so you could be adding, you know, you could be adding considerable amounts of cost to every DeFi transaction, you know, to do a lot of this stuff. So there's there's a lot of things that need to be considered. Yeah. And in terms of regulators not building it, I do have to applaud the regulators that do these tech sprints. Uh, you know, in the UK, NYDFS, it's it's great yep. to see like the regulator engaging in that because it really does give them an appreciation, which they otherwise just, you know, be very hard pressed to get. You know, members of these regulators, they participate in these teams with companies. So it's really uh, it's something that you've seen more in the crypto space than ever before. I think, right. and it's uh, there, there. Just should be more of it. Uh, I think, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about Monero and AML risk and the inherent conflict between privacy and AML. Like, how do you see this ultimately playing out? And and you know, putting Monero and Zcash and Dash aside, just generally, like the in internal conflict between the two. So this is my personal view is that transactions between individuals should be private if that's what they want and do your enforcement at the edges, which is where fiat and crypto come together. So you already have that anyway. If you're going to give people access to US funds or the euro or anything else, those folks are already regulated. So do it there and just enforce it better and get more global enforcement of the regs we already have and let people do whatever they want in between, that's my view of it. I think there, there are a few people who in the regulatory community who think that, oh, well, soon you won't need any kind of fiat money and you'll just be able to buy everything with crypto directly. And I, I, my, my opinion on that is regulate for the reality of the world, not some imagined future. So that's my opinion anyway. And and so, do you think that there is a greater risk that the regulators should be focusing more on? I mean, you just said, hey, they should be focusing on implementing what what we have in place today. But where do you think the emphasis should be, as opposed to where do you think the risks actually are, whether it's in the crypto space or otherwise, as it relates to to money laundering? Again, I think it's all at the endpoints. How do you you know moving money in and out of the system? So. Make sure that you're actually doing enforcement of the rules that you have and make sure that jurisdictions around the world are doing the same thing. And that may mean jurisdictional gray listing, blacklisting, et cetera. There may be jurisdictions where all the bad guys flock to and those will be identifiable and it'll be like the world is today. I'm just not convinced we need tons more regulation. What I so I, I would like to see, you know, better enforcement of what we already have. And then an auditing of it and all that kind of thing. And then the other thing, what I'd really like to see is, I think a better solution than a lot of this stuff is if the problem is, for example, law enforcement needs to do investigations, you know, figure out how you make subpoenas and MLATs electronic so that that can be done quickly 
and you can get that information and you're not spraying, you know, citizens information all over the world to people that you don't know who it, who they are and just relying on a three month MLAT process to be able to do a subpoena. And then the bad guys are long gone. This is again, Dave Jevons at CypherTrace, personal opinion. No, I, I definitely, I see some of that as well, honestly. You know, the, the, the process for, for these inquiries can often be kind of rough and, and sometimes, you know, you might be in a jurisdiction where that request is made, but it could be a central exchange or otherwise, they need to protect their own legal interests as well. So let's say you get a request from a, a provincial German regulator, because of course in Germany, they, they're, they're, it's, not, it's not even federal, it's often very provincially focused. Right. And let's say you get that request, but you're based in another jurisdiction and it's coming from, from Germany. The, the rational counter might be, yeah, we want to give you the information, but we're not subject to, you know, even if you're in Germany, you may not be even within that province, right? Or So, so the, the logical response may be, well, in order to protect ourselves, can you please route this request through an authority that we are, are subject to? So at least in providing this information, I mean, confidentiality agreements typically will say, you know, if we're asked by a regulator, sometimes it's implicit, sometimes it's explicit that the regulator has to have jurisdiction, then we are not subject to these confidentiality obligations. Now, a lot of contracts for, I'd say, central exchanges and the like would probably have even more leeway to release it. But nonetheless, you know, if you're advising an organization that gets a request from, you know, that, that comes direct, it behooves you to say, hey, can you route it through an entity that actually has authority to do it? I mean, you know, you certainly can do it if it's if it's the U.S. You might be like, you know, and you're a foreign jurisdiction, you might be like, okay, the U.S. asks, we're, we're giving it right away. But other jurisdictions, it starts to, you know, when do you, where do you draw the line? You know, if you're a central exchange and you're dealing across the world, which, when do you just willfully give over all this information? It, of course, it depends on the request. And when do you draw the line? Like maybe in the US, you don't want to get on their bad side. But even then, it's like, hey, can you route it through an authority that I'm subject to? So at least I'm acting pursuant to a request and uh, pursuant to a jurisdiction. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's generally the way it's done. And that's generally the right way to do it is if you're in a jurisdiction, you want to get any kind of request for information from an authority in your jurisdiction, and you're compliant with the privacy requirements and disclosure requirements in your jurisdiction. And that's, you know, what MLATs allow people to do. And you will see a lot of I mean, you also see a lot of variance in how crypto companies, and I'm sure banks as well operate, which is some are very strict about that, which is I'm only going to take it from my local, you know, law enforcement or regulator or what have you, enforcement body, typically. And then there's others that, as you say, well, you know, if it's a trusted party and they they'll they'll send the information over anyway. And then there's other, yeah, there there's there are some that just ignore it completely and just say I'm not responding. I'm not in your country. I'm not responding. I don't have to and. You know, so this is back to that whole thing of if if you you know rather than more regulation, enforce what you have, and then make it easier for information requests that are you know validated by court orders and you know the typical subpoena process, for example, to be done electronically in a more standardized fashion. I mean, groups like Europol and Interpol are very good at helping countries work together to facilitate those type of international requests for information and th those bodies do an amazing job of it but it's it's far from perfect and it's it really depends on the on the company that you're dealing with to some extent right and, and i'm guessing in your view fatif probably wouldn't be the right organization to try to create a greater efficiency across jurisdictions for these information requests or maybe they maybe you think they would be i mean there's certainly a central authority the question is is whether they've I mean, they've never really stepped into that kind of role before, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and sort of mandating a particular kind of, you know, I, I, I stopped. <laughs> I was just seating the floor yeah. to you on that one. It's not, in my view, it's not a regulator's job to do that. It's, it's more on the law enforcement side of things to do that. The financial enforcement, not the regulators. It's the enforcers and it's, the, um, and it's law enforcement who needs to put the investment in. It's not about writing more requirements. It's about working together to build some standards, for example. Now, I have met with a number of different startups that are trying to build something in this area, and I applaud that work. 
I think it's a long, hard road, though. It's going to take a lot of work to try to get that done. And let's be honest, law enforcement agencies are generally not rolling in cash. Right. And and then, you know, and they generally aren't lobbying to their government agencies to try to get laws changed around how you exchange information between other countries and things like that. So it's, well, I'd like to see that rather than, again, spraying people's information all over the world. I just think it's going to take a long time. I was advising a client in a, in a jurisdiction and um, the, the request was made and we, and we finally were able to get the request, the, the, the jurisdiction from where the request came to sync up with the jurisdiction where we were located. And so you'd think everything was fine. And then we get the notification. It's like, yeah, so now we're in sync. Can you just give them the information? And it's like, no, you have to ask. You have to say, give it to us. Like, just just do that. And we're totally fine with it. And we're, you would think it would have been a little easier. There was there were treaties. You know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, uh, Seychelles or something. I'm not picking on Seychelles, but it was a real jurisdiction. No. And yet, you know, even then, it was just, you know, we, we were like basically saying, please just do this. All you need to do is say, here is the request and and please give it to us and then we will provide it. And then we have all the cover we need. But uh, yeah. even that was difficult. So, you know, ultimately, I think sometimes you just have to make a call. It's like, hey, we know they're a trusted regulator and, you know, we'll just we'll provide the information because, you know, it's too painful to try to get that authority. You know, by the same token, what becomes difficult is the line drawing. If a regulator has over overstepped in what they're requesting, then that also puts you in a very difficult position. Like they may say, oh, put a hold on this. Well, for how long? And who's telling me to put a hold on these assets? Like you're telling me to put a hold on an asset or to freeze an account you better be you know you better be routing it through an through an enforceable authority or else like who's going to tell me when i i can lift the hold and like what basis is there and how do i even know that it's it's not an overreach in 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 what you want to be held so these are all well i mean regulators questions. enforcers typically don't do that i mean law enforcement might request a hold on funds but regulators generally don't if they're collecting things like suspicious activity reports for example i mean those aren't yeah, filed the regulators in real time. yeah no you're you know? you're 100% right this is more of an enforcement issue correct agreed yeah, it brings out so many other issues. So for example, if someone's funds are stolen, right? Like say I install a bogus MetaMask app on my computer that I got through some bad guys advertising on Google, which by the way is real problem. And it steals all my private keys and steals all my funds. It'd be pretty darn good if you know I could use a Cypertrace or another company like that to figure out where they went and have a real time hold request at that exchange. That benefits everyone. And then, you know, then you can have your legal process to determine is it really the owner and repatriate the funds and things like that. But being able to do it in real time to get hold requests would, in my opinion, if it's a legitimate theft or fraud, would be awesome for consumer protection and helps the exchanges and thwarts the bad guys. Today, that's all done with a, you know, impromptu emails and, you know, telegram chat rooms and things. There's not an automated system to do that. But it, it, it works-ish, but it's all based on a community of trust, you know, very decentralized. So maybe that's the way forward. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting point. And just to sort of uh, pull on the thread of, of the MetaMask issue, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. It's actually very interesting because I was trying to figure some things out for myself on MetaMask. And I started right around the time this whole phishing bot issue emerged, I started seeing like on Reddit, nowhere else. but this alert, like never give your seed phrases out ever, 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 you know? And it's like, it all makes sense. But if you looked at the pictures and, and I'm not going to steal your thunder because you're very familiar with the story. So why don't you explain what, what happened with the MetaMask phishing incident and, and what you know about it and what, what the latest to the extent you're familiar with it is? Yeah, there's, there's numerous types of attacks that have happened and are ongoing. So there's certainly, you know, let's fish people and trick them into, you know, updating their software and then you get access to their private keys. That's one way that they're doing it. But I mean, for many months this year, criminals were paying for ads on search engines to put, if you search for MetaMask, their ad came up the top and looks like it was the real MetaMask site. And let's say you bought a new computer and you you know, you didn't have a backup or something like that. You go, oh, I better get my MetaMask so I can do my crypto safely because it's an awesome product. And 
you basically get an ad that looks like the real thing and you click on it. It's like the same clone of their website and everything. And, you know, because there's open source code out there, you can build a fake one and just put in a way to capture people's private keys. So, you know, that's what happened this year. It continues to happen. It's not, not just against them. It's happened against many other wallets. Bad guys will try anything. But it's, it can be very sophisticated people that get trapped into things like that because you wouldn't think that the top of a Google search would be a fake MetaMask website giving you malicious fake software to manage your keys. But that's happened multiple times this year. Right. And then even if you are on a legitimate MetaMask site, I think the one that I was coming across was this support MetaMask. And somehow, if you had a problem uh, and you looked up support for MetaMask, same principle, you would get hooked into this uh, MetaMask support that wasn't actually MetaMask support. And then they would, along the way, say, oh, if you want me to help you, you got to give me your your seed phrase and everything else. And you know the stories I've read about were people losing tens of thousands and even in some cases, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars through through that kind of scam. Yeah, I mean, at Cypher Trace, I would say we got seven to 10 of those a day of people contacting us where they've had that or similar, uh, been victims of similar other scams or phishing attacks or things like that. So we've, I think we've probably had in the last nine months, mm, over a thousand that we've looked at or have helped other teams help the victims. Um, and that's just the ones we're seeing. So it's it's widespread. I mean, but it's the same thing as anything, you know, in the early days of online banking and PayPal and eBay and all that. I mean, massive phishing against those things. And it worked big time, right? Reset your password. It needs to get built into our infrastructure as well. I mean, it ha- crypto is the number one thing you want to target because, I mean, it's real money. And it's not like there's a bank with 35 years of IT security experience and $200 million a year IT security budget to protect against it. A lot of these are you know, much smaller companies, if they're even a company at all. If they're even a company at all, which yeah, it, it was, it used to be the same with Google. Like, you know, if you, you had an issue with Google and you try to get the support, but you're on the free version, good luck. You know, you'd go to a help forum, right? And that was it. Yeah. And so where do you, so do you think it's DeFi hacks are probably, do you think they're the most prevalent, the ones that you're seeing? Or yeah, phishing. well, that's the certain. It's certainly the highest growth is DeFi-related frauds or hacks. So you know, frauds are obviously you know things like what we call rug pulls. So you know, a DeFi project comes up, looks really cool. Nobody knows who's really running it, but nobody seems to care these days. And you know, oh, that's awesome. I'll put money into it and lock some funds up, and then they you know they have a backdoor in the thing and pull out and disappear. So those happen with some frequency. And then the other one are exactly, you know, hacks where the bad guys read the smart contracts, find out that there's some bug in it, and you can either freeze or obviously you prefer to to take the funds. And that's been the highest growth so far this year, 2021. And so from your side, when you get involved, are you basically working to provide the information that ultimately goes to like a law enforcement authority to then try to put a hold on the account or something? Or do you have more direct results, like maybe even going directly to a, an exchange once you track it? Yeah, we do it more directly. So if we work with a if we work with a law firm or an exchange or um, an individual, then you know we can go directly to the exchanges and or other folks and you know recommend a, a hold on funds but you know the key is you have to do it as quickly as possible because you know fraudsters scammers hackers they typically want to move it as quickly as possible into their own private wallets you know, time is definitely of the essence if we get a if we get a complaint at cyphertrace from someone who got ripped off 5 days ago okay we can tell you where your money went but it's not there anymore typically right so right. You know, right? Because no hackers, so speed is everything. Yeah, you're not going to leave it sitting in a at a at a big centralized exchange for long. No, for sure. So, so great. Listen, uh, before we break, is there anything that uh, I haven't asked you that maybe we should touch on a little bit before we uh, close the episode? Yeah, I'd just like to mention briefly around just back to the regulations and you know the proposals, and I, I and I know you've talked about this before, but another concern that I have is the proposed regulation on developers of DeFi products. 
you know, if it's, let's say it's a, I mean, if it's a company like Uniswap that has tons of venture capital behind it, I get it. That's, you know, you have somewhere to go, but what if it's, you know, three smart people who write some software and unleash it in the world? Um, I'm not in favor of software regulation. Early in my career, I, I was dealing with the tail end of what we call the crypto wars. So basically back in the nineties, in at least in the United States, encryption software was regulated under an arms control ITAR regulation. And that meant you could not export strong cryptography outside of the United States, unless it was certain specific types of companies. And that just drove all the innovation outside of the country. And we actually had to import our crypto from Australia. And eventually that stuff all got overturned. But it, you know, again, unintended consequences. So I'm not in favor of regulating software. I mean, back in those days, people were wearing t-shirts with the RSA algorithm printed on and walking, you know, going in, traveling internationally just to say, this is so stupid. You know, I can, in 400 characters, and I can implement <laughs> a very simple cryptography algorithm that like I'm effectively violating arms control. And so I think we have to be very careful in this DeFi world around that, you know, where those regulators start to think about that. We don't want to get in that situation. No, for sure. And 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 that's probably one of the most problematic areas when you talk about regulation, where you start to touch on the creators, the builders who who really don't have, aren't the ones necessarily profiting to the same extent as like a VC or, or otherwise, they're just the workers. And if you're, you're going to impose those kinds of penalties on them, that's just, you know, that's how you stifle innovation. So it's a, it's a great point. Dave, thanks so much right. for coming on the show. So if people want to learn more about you or what CypherTrace is doing, where should they go? Well, cyphertrace.com is your best resource. We have an awesome blog there. Uh, we also put out quarterly cryptocurrency anti-money laundering reports. The latest one is out now. It just came out uh, a few days ago. It looks at a lot of really interesting things. It's about a 40, 50 page report every quarter. It looks at the major hacks, threats, regulatory issues that are coming up. Sanctions evasion issues are, are one of the main features um, and DeFi issues in the in the current report. So check us out there and on Twitter. Excellent. Dave, thanks so much. It was great having you on the show. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure.